Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Before our Christmas season break, when we uh, looked for a bit at the significance of the titles given to Jesus in Isaiah 9 verse 6, we had been working our way through Peter's first letter. And we had gotten up to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Now we're going to take off from that point, looking at verses 8 through 12, which really form a kind of a, a mini break. It's not a complete section break, but it's the end of a, a series of admonitions concerning how we as God's people are called to live. So we're going to, to look at verses 8 through 12, but so that we can see that in context, we'll start at verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be, the, be with the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a quiet or a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Likewise, husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Brothers and sisters beloved of our Lord through Christ, as we return to our study of 1 Peter, it is good for us to remember from the start how clearly Peter has shown us that our salvation, our standing before God, rests entirely upon the grace of God poured out in Christ. At the very start of this letter, we were told that we have been chosen by God, sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit, and cleansed by the blood of Christ. We were born anew into hope, says verse 3 of chapter 1, through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And verse 5 in chapter 1 says, we who are saved are now being preserved for salvation in God. Time and again, the first two chapters of Peter's book remind us that our hope of eternal life, our confidence in standing before God, rests entirely upon the work of God. We contribute nothing to our salvation. And it's good for us to remember that because the passage before us this morning, taken in the abstract, taken without that context, could lead us to think that we stand before God based on what we do, that our 
being heard by God, that our being received by the Lord depend on our faithfulness. That's not the case. Of that, Peter has been quite clear, but so earnestly does he urge us to embrace a particular lifestyle that we can easily begin to think that it rests at least in part on us. But you see, Peter speaks that firmly about our calling to a life of holiness both within and without because God loves us that much. God loves us that much that He doesn't want to simply cause our sins to be forgiven, to be wiped out so that we can be saved as, as those who have destroyed ourselves, those who are an utter wreck. But He loves us so much that He wants to see us transformed. He wants us to become what we were meant to be at the start before sin intruded and began to, to wreck us. And so Peter speaks with that passion about our calling to be holy, our calling to be transformed, because that is the gift that God is giving to us. And so in our text this morning, we discover that God calls His children, and He calls us quite eagerly and powerfully to cultivate a life of Christ-like blessing of those around us. Not a life of simply receiving blessings, but of, of blessing those around us. So that's our theme this morning. God calls his children to cultivate a life of Christ-like blessing. Now that calling involves all that we do, all that we seek to accomplish, but it begins inside. It's a calling of the heart. And so that's the first thing that Peter shows us here in verses 8 and 9, that we're called, first of all, to set our hearts on Christ-like attitudes of blessing. Notice how our text begins with that word, finally. It's literally the conclusion in the Greek, which shows us that this is the conclusion of, as I said before, a, a brief sort of subsection within Peter's letter. A subsection that begins in verse 11 of the previous chapter. Peter had described up to that point what God had done and the identity he had given to us in Christ. And then he began to describe how that identity ought to reveal itself in our behavior, in our lifestyle, in the way that we live and interact with the people around us. In the verses that followed, he described how we are to behave honorably toward the authorities whom God sets over us, the masters who have control of us, the husbands for the wives, and the wives for the husbands, how we are to honor them. And now we come to the conclusion of this instruction about honorable Christian living. And that conclusion describes first our attitudes, then our actions. Now notice that, that as he comes to this conclusion, Peter emphasizes this is for all of us. Men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, all Christians are called to embrace these attitudes that are described in verses 8 and 9. And there are five attitudes described. And they're arranged, if we look at them carefully, they're arranged in what's technically known as a chiasm. A chiasm is a, a form of almost Hebrew poetry. It's a, a literary form that the Jews really perfected. It's called a chiasm because it's 
uh, kind of arranged like the Greek letter key or X. So the first and the last elements relate to one another, the second and the next to last, on down to the center, and the emphasis being on the center. So that's how we're going to consider verse 8 according to the way that, that Peter arranged it. Looking at the outermost elements, we see that true disciples are called to be of one mind and courteous. Now, of one mind, that shows that we're to strive to have unity in what we believe. Not necessarily uniformity. We're going to have different tastes in things. Some people like fish. Other people really don't. That's okay. He's going to like white walls. She's going to prefer beige. No problem. But in the, the important things, the things that we're called to believe, we are called to unity. What we believe about God and his nature and man and his need. What we believe about Jesus and his work and its significance for us. What we think about the authority of the Bible and how that authority plays out in our lives. In such matters, we must strive to think as one, resting our unity on God's word. And that leads us to the, the fifth element, that the believer must be courteous. Now that, quite honestly, that's probably not the best word to render the Greek, tech, the Greek uh, phrase there. When we think of courteous, we think of holding the door for someone or chewing with our lips closed. But this is resting on the original meaning of courteous, which derives from the phrase court, court etiquette. In other words, the behavior that is appropriate when you approach the king. This is a behavior that is humble. As we see, you might see, depending on the, the version of the Bible in front of you in your, your text note. The, the Greek word is literally loving-minded. Putting that person before you first in your mind, in your heart, in your desires. That loving disposition of the believer is absolutely essential if we are to have unity of mind. Because we won't be willing to learn from each other. We won't be willing to admit that we might be wrong. We won't be willing to grow in our understanding of the truth by means of those around us unless we are lovingly disposed toward our brothers and sisters desiring to deepen our unity with them, desiring to trust their insights. So we must ask God for the, the ability to love them and to trust them, them being the people to whom he has united us, the congregation of the Lord. We need to ask God to teach us to love one another in our minds, to be favorably disposed toward each other so that we will gain a unity of understanding, a unity in the truth. And that leads us to giving our, our hearts to one another. The second element in the list is rendered as compassion. It's from the Greek term uh, sympathes. Sounds familiar, right? Sympathy. Literally means to suffer alongside of. It's, it's what we read in Romans 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that stands parallel to the fourth element, be tender-hearted. Be tender-hearted. It, it refers to a compassion that arises, a, 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 a sympathy that arises from deep within, from the inner person. This indicates a tenderness toward one another. That's not just on the surface. It's not just, just saying, how are you, but not really caring how they respond. 
It's that kind of tenderness toward one another that really honestly, truly cares. That asks, how are you doing? And the way that you ask it, they know that you really want to know. And if you give a trite answer and say, oh, I'm fine, they say, no, really, how are you doing? It's that attitude that wants to know, that truly wants to share in that life of the other person. That's not easy. It requires work. It requires really caring about, really seeking to know the people around us. And that requires God working within us. And then right at the heart of verse 8, we're to cultivate an attitude of love. Love of the sort that is due to our brothers. In other words, a deep and unwavering love that's absolute, that doesn't depend on circumstances, that doesn't rest on what they can do for us. Within the church especially, we are to love one another as brothers. Because Jesus has drawn us into one family. We've been adopted. All of us who trust in Jesus have been adopted into one family. And therefore, we're called to love one another with a love that is absolute and unrelenting. The world will hate us because hatred is the, the air that is breathed by those who are steeped in sin. But we are not of the world. We are of Christ. We are of the one who is love. We are of the one who came and gave himself to us in love. So you see, our attitudes then are to be attitudes that reflect the attitude of Christ. And those attitudes will stand in stark contrast as we adopt them, as we seek to cultivate those kinds of attitudes. They will stand in stark contrast with the attitudes of the world around us. That's what we see in verse 9. Those who are separated from God, they're always eager to repay when they're wronged. They want to get even. They want to make that other person regret having crossed them. But we're to be different. Not returning evil for evil. That word evil, that is such a broad term. It could include anything. The guy who spread some lies about you, the other person who stole from you, or even that person who murdered your best friend. From the greatest offense to the least, he stole your parking space. Regardless of what that other person did, we are to desire a blessing for the one who has harmed us. Also, when they speak ill of us, when they revile you, when they say something hurtful about you, again, whether it's something that has utterly trashed your reputation in your estimation, or whether they've just said something that just rubs you the wrong way. Our natural response in sin is to do unto others what they have done to us. If you're going to say something rude to me, I'm going to say something rude back. If you're going to insult me, I'm going to insult you even worse. If you have teenage boys, you know how easily this comes to the, the human heart. It comes to all of us. Boys just are less uh, self-controlled sometimes in what they say to one another. But we're to fight against that. Not reviling but blessing. Not showing hatred, but showing love. To this, he says, you were called that you might inherit a blessing. 
You were called to this selfless attitude. You were called to love the unlovable, to pray for those who curse you. You were called to reflect Christ in the attitudes that he revealed. Remember, he's the one who suffered for us when we were his enemies, when we hated him. He was the one who prayed while he hung on the cross, prayed for those who mocked him that God would forgive them. He blessed with life eternal those whose sins destroyed him. And God wants us to reveal him in the desires that we cultivate in our hearts. And as we do, he says, we shall inherit a blessing. Notice how he says that. We shall inherit a blessing. When you inherit something, you receive it by right as the children of the one who has gone. Right? What he's saying in in phrasing it that way is that God gives his blessing, his eternal blessing, to those who are his children. And that's why it's so important that we cultivate these attitudes because when we cultivate these attitudes, we're revealing that we are the children of God. Because these attitudes don't come natural to those who are the children of Adam. These attitudes are the polar opposite of those who remain the enemies of God, remain far off from God. But those who have become the children of God in Christ, those who've been adopted, they're different, they're changed, they're transformed, and they're revealing the image of their heavenly Father. Great, so what's that mean for you this week? What's that mean for you this year? Well, folks, it means that we need to cultivate those attitudes that the Lord has laid out for us here. We're to cultivate these attitudes of being of one mind and having compassion for one another, of loving as brothers and being tender-hearted and being courteous, that is, being lovingly disposed toward those around us. So you need to ask yourself, we all, each one of us, need to ask ourselves, am I cultivating these attitudes in my heart? If you don't know, if you're not sure, if you're not really positive that you're cultivating any kind of attitudes in particular, then you're cultivating worldly attitudes. Because one way or another, we are cultivating attitudes in our hearts. We're seeing people, thinking about people, responding in our minds and in our hearts toward those around us in particular ways. And if you're not doing it intentionally, then you're allowing the default to take precedence. And the default is to think and desire as the world does. The only escape from that is turning wholeheartedly and intentionally to Christ confessing that our desires have been contrary to his ways, admitting our weakness, that we can't change ourselves, and then asking for his help, for his power to transform our hearts and our minds. And as we ask, he will enable us to do what we couldn't do on our own. So start by asking yourself then, how do I regard my fellow church members? Do I care about these people with whom I share a pew? What do I know about them? What do I know about their family, about their work, about their desires, about their struggles? How can I learn more about them? Pick someone. Pick the person who's in the pew beside you or in the pew in front of you. 
and resolve to learn a little bit more about them. Ask them some questions. Invite them for coffee or for dinner. Figure out how you can pray for that person or for that family. And then move beyond the church. After you've begun to, to show that love toward the people in the church, to cultivate that attitude toward a few of the families in the church, look to your neighbor, the people on your street, the people on your block. What do you know about them? What do you know about their struggles? What do you know about the worldview with which they're living their life? What do you know about their family? If you don't know anything, well, that makes you pretty common. But it also shows that you have a great work to do. So again, ask God to give you love for your neighbor and to give you the courage to start. Is there a wall between you and your neighbor? Not a, a literal wall, but a figurative wall because something unkind or unwise has been spoken? Then, then go and ask forgiveness. Invite them over. Again, spend time face to face with them. Offer to give them some help if they need it. But if you refuse to care about others, then you're showing that you're not really the children of the king who went out of his way to restore us to himself, went out of his way to tear down that wall that separated us from him. And so if you're not willing, if you're not willing to do that toward your neighbor, to show that attitude toward the people in the pews around you, we must be willing. We must cultivate those attitudes. And that means we must spend time first on our knees asking God to give us a heart that loves our neighbor. And then we need to turn to the outside. Having begun to cultivate the attitudes within, we need to attend to the actions without. And that's where Paul turns, or Peter turns next, using a section of Psalm 34 to do so. Now, Psalm 34 is quite appropriate to Peter's letter because it echoes the same kinds of themes. It emphasizes that that the Lord has done a wonderful thing in drawing us to himself, but also that we live in a broken world, that we're going to experience heartache and pain and suffering in this world. But then right in the middle of Psalm 34, the psalmist points out that God calls us to endure that suffering as Christians, as his people, living differently than those of the world. And so this section shows us, again, using the words of Psalm 34, that God's children are to fill their hands with Christ-like acts of blessing. Peter begins in this section by defining his audience, because what he writes here isn't just for anyone. Those who are outside of Christ will think these commands, these instructions, to be foolish. And even if they don't think they're foolish, they won't be able to take them up. This instruction is for those who long for life to be what it was meant to be. Not a life of struggling, not a life of strife, but a life filled with living according to the character of God. A life that's filled with blessing others, with showing love to others. This is for those who long for good days. Not days of suffering and grief and arguments, but days filled with beauty and delight and fulfillment and love. Only God can provide that. 
And he does so for those who walk in the way of faith. So Peter briefly describes what that way of faith looks like. And he begins with the tongue, with the lips. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Speaking evil is a pervasive sin among sinful men. We're so quick to speak that which will hurt others because it doesn't cost us anything, it seems, to say it. We don't have to go out of our way to say something mean, to say something cruel. We don't even have to work hard to say something thoughtless that will bring a person down to the pit of despair in an instant. And again, he uses that word evil. It's such a broad term. It includes sinful things, obviously, but also saying things that are simply hurtful or thoughtless. We must learn to silence the speech that would tear down and destroy. Also, things that are deceitful. Our God is the God of truth. And he calls his people to be a people who speak the truth. And therefore, we must not be a people who speak the lie, who habitually deceive those around us. You see, Jesus, our, our brother and our king, he was known as the one who spoke the truth. And he wants us to follow him down that road of truth speaking. But if all we're known for is speaking lies, being those who are untrustworthy, well, how can we expect them to believe us when we speak about Jesus, when we tell them about life eternal? So we must become known for speaking what is true and good and righteous so that when we speak to them about Christ, they will believe. They will believe. And then he goes from our lips to the rest of our lives. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Again, that broad word, evil. All that is sinful, rebellious, worthless, common, proud, turn away from it, reject it. Turn your path in an opposite direction to that which is good. As broad as is the Greek term for evil, kakos, so broad is the Greek word for good. And that means that we need to take up that which reflects God, that which pleases God, that which is obedient and reflective of Him. Note well that this phrase, let him turn away from evil and do good, that phrase shows us that there is neither neutrality nor passivity in the Christian life. There's no neutrality. There's no part of life that is free from the calling to discipleship. We can't simply do what is good and what is pleasing to God here on Sunday and then go and blend in with the world on Monday and think that's okay. No. Whatever is evil, whatever is bad, whatever is worthless, we're to turn aside from. And in all that we do, whether work or play, whether amazingly consequential or seemingly insignificant, we need to strive to take all of it captive to Christ, doing that which is pleasing in His sight. And that's not a passive calling. A life of discipleship, a life seeking after righteousness, that doesn't just happen. It's something that we must intentionally and continuously pursue. And we will pursue it. We can pursue it. But only if we ask the Father to equip us to that end. And meanwhile, we need to seek after peace. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Not peace the way the world defines it. The world defines peace as simply an absence of active hostility. 
But that's just surface level. That kind of peace disappears in an instant. True peace True peace means more than just not saying anything mean about that other person but totally avoiding him. No. True peace asks, how have I offended you? What do I need to do to show you that I'm sorry? How can we love one another? How can we rebuild this relationship that has been broken? That does not come easy. It's hard. So hard, in fact, that it's what Jesus, what drove Jesus to the cross. But if we truly are His brothers, if we truly are the children of God, then that is what we will passionately pursue because He did it for us. And not everyone will allow us to obtain it. Some people, in the hardness of their heart, In the brokenness of their sin, they will utterly refuse. No matter how much you seek peace with them, no matter how much you seek to be reconciled, they will keep coming back with offense after offense after offense. That's beyond your control. But the Lord says in through through Paul in Romans twelve, seek peace with all men insofar as it depends upon you, which means you must do everything in your power to pursue that peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, we heard Jesus say, for they shall be called sons of God because that's what God does for us. And again, we can only do it toward one another when He is at work within us. Now here's the thing. None of this can we do and then cross off the list as being done. I don't know about you, but I love those kinds of tasks. On my days off, I I like to fix things. Repair things around the house, fix a car. Not because I'm such a great craftsman or such a great mechanic, but because it's so rewarding to take something that's broken and fix it, to see that absolute transformation. It's so rewarding to be able to cross it off the to-do list. But this stuff, devoting our speech to that which blesses rather than that which destroys, devoting our deeds to good instead of evil, devoting our passion to the pursuit of peace. That stuff's a lifetime project, the likes of which none of us will finish until the very end of our time here on earth. And yet we're called to strive for it daily. Because as we strive for it, as we see where we're falling short and we ask for God's help, as we renew our devotion to pursuing this aspect or that, We learn to rely not on us, but on Him. And we learn to delight more and more and more on the amazing character of Christ which is being instilled within us. And God promises, when we fill our hands with these acts of Christ-like blessing, He cares. He sees. He sees what we do when we strive to reflect with our actions the actions of Christ. When you sit down and talk with that person at school that no one talks with, that everyone avoids. And you show the love to care about him. 
When you take your day off and you use it to to do some chores around that elderly person's home because they can't do it themselves. When you swallow your pride and you apologize and seek peace with someone who is difficult and who you suspect probably won't reciprocate. When you do those things, God sees and he listens to your prayer. Not because you've earned the right to be heard. We couldn't do that. Quite honestly, we could never attain to that kind of perfection. Even the very best of our works really aren't that great. But when we do those kinds of things, he hears our prayer because God always hears the prayer of his children. And when you do those things, you show that you are his children. But not so for those who devote themselves to doing evil. These God refuses to hear and instead he promises that he will judge them for their persistently wicked works. How much better, how much better to be heard of God, to be loved of God, to be received by God as his children. Beloved people of the Lord, hear this well. Those who truly belong to God are saved by grace alone. Through the works of Christ alone, received in faith alone. But although we are saved by grace alone, the Christian life is not a life of passivity. It's not a life of simply coasting. Because we belong to Him, because He has adopted us as His children, we will increasingly bear the image of our Father. So He calls us to set our minds very intentionally on Christ-like attitudes that will bless others. And he calls us to fill our hands daily with Christ-like acts that will bless others. So let us pray this week, this week, let us pray that God would give us the strength and the desire to do that. And then this week, put it into action. If it's only with one person, one family, one neighbor, one friend, put it into action. Devoting yourself anew to reflecting the character of your Father above. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you have been so amazingly gracious to us because we don't deserve, we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your promises, we certainly don't deserve your power at work within us to make us become reflectors of your image. And yet you have promised to do exactly that. And Lord, we ask that you therefore would be glorified through us as we take up that calling. Make us eager to cultivate attitudes, Lord, that reflect your attitude toward us. And Lord, give us the power and the courage to do those works which will show Christ to those around us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.